Good morning. You're, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 31, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. I'm pleased to have with us this morning Professor Richard Matthews, Director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs, known for making humanitarian inroads into huge looming problems worldwide. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest for this whole hour is Professor Richard Matthew, Director of UCI's Center for Unconventional Security Affairs, who leads one of the most exciting careers on this campus, whose travel itinerary would flatten most human beings. Some marvel at the fact that he's still alive. <laughs> Richard is Professor of International Environmental Politics in the Schools of Social Ecology and Social Science at the University of California, Irvine, and founding director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs. He received his BA at McGill and his master's and PhD at Princeton. And after several illustrious appointments at other universities, he joined UCI in the late 1990s. He studies the environmental dimensions of conflict and peace building, climate change, adaptation and conflict, and post-conflict societies, and transnational threat systems. His extensive field work includes conflict-riddled zones in Southeast Asia and East, Central, and West Africa. He is a senior fellow at the International Institute for Sustainable Development in Geneva, a senior fellow at the Monk School at the University of Toronto, a senior member of the United Nations Expert Advisory Group on the Environment, Conflict, and Peacebuilding, and a member of the World Conservation Union's Commission on Environmental, Economic, and Social Policy. One recent publication is Integrating Climate Change into Peacebuilding, and with his breathless international speaking and research calendar, he's made the time to join us again today to post us on so many new enterprises at the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs. So we're going to call it CUSA, I think, from now on. It's now 12 years in existence. It's the hub of a global network of academics and practitioners who study and develop solutions to human and environmental security challenges. He joins me in studio today. Welcome back to the program, Richard Matthew. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Claudia. Well, before I get to all my questions, I'd like to congratulate you, Richard, on 12 years of growing a knowing and applied organization from a fledgling research collective to a strong and established research center. It's pretty uncanny the intent behind unconventional in your center's name. Is it turning out this project the way you had hoped or expected? I mean, I think it's become, it's become bigger than we expected, um, but that's sort of a reflection of the challenges that the planet's facing these days. Tall, steep, right. Well, let's start with some general ideas and we'll get later into some of the specific, you know, in the practice. So, uh, opening up a little planning theory to explain what you mean when you approach the goal of sustainability. It has to be multidisciplinary, multi-jurisdictional. Can you p 
peel off the sort of promotional kind of feel-good layers that it's, that you hear sustainability be used, and what is what's really the core of a sustainable enterprise venture? I mean, I think that the, um, the increasingly we are seeing that the 20th century launched a series of of initiatives that were very exciting, um, you know, it, to to many people and 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 lifted up um, large numbers of people, but have had enormous consequences. And so these trajectories, whether it's it's the growth of the automobile culture or the the pace of urbanization or the conversion of of forest cover into farmland, are uh, are are sort of at a point. They're at an inflection point in history. And if we don't change the trajectories then many of these things will start to backfire and collapse on us. And as Dr. Jean uh, Fried, who was here as a guest, and he, he plotted the dots. You, you, in 1800, we were, what, at one, not quite one billion, and then now we're at seven billion. So that, that puts sustainability on the ropes here and essential. I mean, I think that, that uh, nobody knows how much larger the human population is going to grow, but current predictions suggest somewhere between nine to 12 billion um, and 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 it will, we're going to add probably two to three billion people over the course of this century. That's a lot of people. Think of it this way: we have to double the amount of urban space on the planet in a single lifetime. And it's not just about the space, but it's about the level of consumption. The quality, the standard of living, has increased amidst this growing population. So that it couldn't be more steep. The the uh, the looming hazards of maintaining renewable and non-renewable resources to meet this consumer demand. I mean, the, the humans grow in, in ways that are very energy intensive. So we need lots of energy, we need, we need lots of water to grow the way we've been accustomed to growing over the past couple of hundred years. And, and uh, seven, eight, nine, ten billion people using lots of energy and water is, is something that ver nobody really believes is going to be, is going to be uh, easy to achieve. Okay. Well, as I, I mentioned, jo Dr. John Fried, he uh, was, you recently host him in your Distinguished Lectureship series, was That's last right. month, and he talked about some very crucial elements in this, um, in addressing s these many dimensions of sustainability. He talked about a participatory citizenry. He talked about political will, and I, I just wonder uh, with the opening up the fragmentation among all the the sectors uh, involved and the income inequality it's making that sustainability goal it seems more hard to achieve I mean I think that the I, I think that we've spent the past 25 years putting together a story which um, is 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 very elegant, very parsimonious, very easy to understand, but also very misleading. Um, so, they, so, for example, we scientists look at the world and they say, see millions and millions and millions and millions of automobile trips every day. And they see that, and they, and they see that the, the outcome of this are droughts and floods and severe weather events. And so the solution looks very, e from, from a bird's eye view, looks like drive less. But when you get on the ground, 
um, and you start to talk to real people, how do you tell a taxi cab driver to drive less? How do you tell somebody who's living in Riverside working as a gardener or a house cleaner in Orange County that they need to drive less? It's, it might be easy for, for uh, an upscale person in, in San Francisco to decide that they're going to bike to work or somebody in Geneva to decide they're going to take public transportation on their next holiday. But for many people, the, the, the simple, stark solutions are not actually attainable or not easily attainable. So the taxi cab driver says, I'll drive less, but what, what, what am I going to do to make a living? The person in Riverside says, I would love to d- drive less. Are you going to provide me with cheap, reliable public transportation? So, so things fall apart on the ground. And I think that the, the, the single, perhaps, biggest challenge that we have is that the world is consolidating into into two very very different parts, um, a, an incredibly wealthy part that can invest heavily in its own infrastructure, in its own resilience, in its own education, in its own healthcare systems, and a and a tremendously um, less wealthy part that is struggling to put food on the table every day. And you know, when you're when when you're facing conditions of scarcity, whatever it is, wh- um, it, you know. It focuses your mind to deal with immediate challenges, and it, and and you don't really have the bandwidth to to take on other types of issues. So people might all want to figure out ways to to have less environmental impact, but a, an awful lot of the world's population is struggling just to meet the challenges of each day. And so as long as we have this deeply divided world and we allow one part to continue growing rapidly and the other part to continue to fall behind, I think sustainability is going to be pretty difficult to achieve. Okay. We know that you've been able to address these in some specific projects, and so we can get into them. We're still talking about the general here. Um, Dr. John Fried, he's done some amazing work, and he he understands with his credential, he's a a professor of fluid mechanics at the University of Louis Pasteur in Strasbourg. Um, He broke it down nicely, as I said, with uh, those those elements um, to deal with the, the scarcity of these resources and uh, how to mobilize these groups in your practices. Uh, I, I want to say those examples because I want to stay in the, the planning theory to talk about sort of move in from sustainability to talk about what you've been saying too about how public-private partnerships are trying to address some of this, but you've become a bit wary of the long-term implications of many of these kinds of ventures, both on the public and the private side. Why don't you, you've published a lovely piece in your uh, sustaining public-private partnerships. So I'd like for you to give us the general sort of mechanisms that are making it difficult for those public-private partnerships to remain within the goals that are promised at the outset. Um, sure, I mean, I think that, that every every few years, a white knight arrives on the scene, and right now it's public-private partnerships. And these these are this is not a new concept. After the Great Depression in 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 the thirties, uh, um, people had lost faith in in business to a large extent, and pri- the government joined forces to an, to in a sense redeem the business community. So we had a we had a whole lot of public-private partnerships 
in the in the 30s and 40s. Now we're in a different situation where where governments have political authority; they can get things done in principle, um, but they often don't have the financial resources, the technical skills, the managerial skills to to implement, especially large act types of activities. And we're seeing whether it's rebuilding infrastructure or managing state and national parks or investing in education that governments lack those resources these days. And and raising more taxes is not an easy thing to do. So people are experimenting with, with partnerships between businesses that have lots of capital and managerial and technical skills and governments that have uh, political authority. And in our review, these almost always begin well. They almost always deliver some benefits early. But they tend almost always to be unsustainable. And when we think of examples here, whether it's you know building a, a toll road or building a stadium, it starts off great. The government invests some money. It creates a it create it you know deals with the regulatory issues. It it creates the the momentum. The private sector comes in, but after a few years, the private sector says says to the government in in many cases it says you know we're going to have to raise tolls. We're going to have to raise ticket prices to remain profitable. We can no longer operate in, 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 in the way we've been operating. And the government looks and says, wow, if we raise ticket prices, we're going to start excluding large numbers of people. So then the government e either has to subsidize the event or it has to allow it to drift into something that is no longer really public. But it hadn't. It had started to subsidize it from the beginning. It, it's always, the, yeah. So it, it's sort of ratcheting up the subsidies completely. and ratcheting downward the private sector's commitment to maintaining that infrastructure because they have a, a finite term up to maybe like in the local toll roads, maybe a 30-year uh, maintenance obligation. But they're, they're running that infrastructure uh, into the ground with their actual week-to-week, uh, year-to-year uh, -year maintenance of that because they know they hand it over in whatever condition to the, the public sector at the end of the term. I mean, I think that the, the you're, you're right. The there's there's a challenge in taking the incentives of the private sector, which is really to make money, and the what is supposed to be the incentive of government, which is to provide goods and services and to, to remain the public. In power, yes. Um, and that that's unfortunately that sort of sometimes eclipses the the real the, the the deeper goal. But those two incentive structures are not compatible in a lot of situations. I'll give you an example. Police. Private private-public partnerships have been very popular in rebuilding countries coming out of war because governments are often um, cash poor and there's a lot of damage. I'll take Liberia as an example. During the war, the port was destroyed, the energy grid was destroyed, the water system was destroyed, but at the end of the war, the government did not have any any money to invest. So it was able to cobble a little bit together from the world community, but it formed partnerships with businesses. And these businesses said, okay, we'll rebuild the port, we'll rebuild the energy system, we'll rebuild the water system. But very quickly, it, 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 it became evident to people that for the private sector, rebuilding meant connecting these things to where there were still resources in the country. So over the course of a few years, the wealthy parts of Liberia had energy and they had water and they had access to the ports, and the poor parts felt that all this investment was providing no benefit to them at all, which is true. And it was draining resources to rebuild the other sectors. Completely. It was all about shipping and trade, but not about social welfare uh, systems that were totally, that always go by the wayside in a so war conflict. Exactly. And er early on, it looked like, well, everybody can benefit from a, a renewed energy grid. Everybody can benefit from a refurbished port. But in fact, um, some people benefit a whole lot more than others from these ty types of investments. 
So, so that, so, so there are. I'm not saying that public-private partnerships can never work, but I am saying that there's that the incentives of the private partner um, often undermine the goals of the public sector over the long term. And when when John Fried talked about these uh, different kinds of ventures, I mean, the, you're talk and you're you're overlapping here with the theme about the political will. That political will will go goes by the wayside, as you said, to uh, to appease constituencies. That because the the pricing for maintaining that it's the public partnerships usually about a public good uh, and and public resources that are more uh, I think more scarce than are the the p private resources. So uh, that 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 political will is a pretty wily sort of factor to to count on for sustaining that venture. I think it's I think it's very difficult to sustain it through political will. Um, you know, in, in more and more countries, politicians spend an enormous amount of their time campaigning. Um, and, and, and this creates an incentive to really bias towards short-term gains. And, and as, uh, when we have a political system that is heavily biased towards short-term gains, but we've got problems which, by almost every estimation, are going to take many years to resolve. Generations. You've got, you, you, you have a situation which is, is sort of bound to tend towards failure. So for those of you who want to know where this voice of wisdom is coming from here on Ask a Leader KUCI 80.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org, is my guest Richard Matthew, director of UCI's Center for Unconventional Security Affairs. And we're talking in the, the general aspect of the theory behind what, um, how we can intervene in these looming uh, problems in, in the uh, environmental domain where the, the consumer demands exacted on a limited re, uh, re, and unre renewable and uh, non-renewable resources in a growing population with a higher, um, increasingly higher uh, standard of living can, all these factors can be reconciled. So, um, then what I just wanted to let you know, and uh, for some listeners that are tuned into the Heather McCoy show, every show begins with the discussion of the state of the stadiums around the country. <laughs> so they're very critically looking at that sort of push-pull uh, in that public-private partnership. And they're very, it's a progressive uh, take on watching those resources, who's actually getting to use them. And so in, in your uh, public, in your paper, Sustaining Public-Private Partnerships, you talk about uh, there, there are monopoly effects because there's only one firm that is uh, participating in this venture. You don't, we don't, and I don't know if there's models for uh, multiple firms to be brought on to hedge that bet, or will the firms negotiate away other participants? I mean, is there enough political will to say, sorry, but you know, uh, AT and T, we want to see, uh, you know, other, we want to see Comcast, somebody else coming into. Uh, is that has that ever been tried? I mean, it, it's, I don't know whether it's ever been tried, but I do know that business has a big incentive to minimize its risk in a partnership. So it's going to try to, um, to the extent possible, push, push risk towards the public partner. Um, and, and part of that means, you know, not allowing it to be displaced by, by competitors over the course of the project's sort of, sort of you know, life. So I think that... that one of the problems is that the public the public partner tends to assume all the uh, or most of the risk um, in in these types of partnerships and that's a and that can become very expensive so there is a structural 
a built-in asymmetry that there, the the terms of the public-private partnership largely re rest with um, and the control more with the private sector in negotiating the venture. I mean, I think that that you know, if we have large um, pools of capital that are locked into different places, into I individuals, businesses, families, and so on. And, and the question is, can parts of that, can some of that capital be mobilized to provide public goods and services? And, and whether we're, we're thinking of, of, you know, big foundations like the Gates Foundation taking on public problems, or we're thinking of, of people joining with government to build stadium or toll roads, um, you can understand that the, the desire, it's, it's, it's a really a way of saying, well, we can, we can make this money work for the public without taxing people and reallocating it that way. And, and, and the people who have the money tend to believe, well, we're much better at managing it. Ultimately, this is going to be your best buy because we're going to reduce the inefficiency. It's our money. Bill Gates will think I'm going to spend it well. If you know, if 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 the, I let the government take over this this money and spend it, it would almost certainly have less impact. Now, is that true? Um, you know, in our country, I think I think there are people who are very much aligned with the idea that the private sector understands how to invest much more effectively than the government sector does. But when we look at it, the private sector um, may understand how to invest, but but it doesn't necessarily understand how to provide public goods and services. So so how do you bring these things together? Very difficult. And I I think there's an irony, Richard, in the 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 there are externalities that are uh, the the outcome of that private firm's activities and that the the public partnership is sort of an undoing of the externalities that that firm may have been responsible for so um, is that irony addressed when in uh, in these kinds of oh, discussions I think, I think it's it's uh, you know if I understand you correctly we see it very clearly in the in the in what is currently um, being explored, and that is having large beverage companies like Coke and Pepsi okay. save our you know, water in different parts of the world. So these are the people who have used enormous amounts of water unsustainably, who are now leading the effort uh, in sustainable water management. Now, is it possible that they actually could do this? It's, of course it's possible. It's, it, it, it's possible. They do have managerial and technical skills which are very sophisticated. On the other hand, you know, um, can, can you do it in a way which is fair and sustainable? Um, that, I think, has yet to be proven. Well, I mean, that they instead of a public-private partnership, Coca-Cola could say, we're now going to get out of the business of, of bottling every single <laughs> bit of liquid that you ever consume, including water. We're not, we're not, they're not pointing to the tap. They're still going to produce this uh, water, energy-intensive product, uh, the, the bottled water, and, uh, then, uh, and then hands over here, what puppets over here, we're, we're going to be good... Uh, neighbors partners in trying to um, improve water quality in some I don't know godforsaken place I don't want to quite put it that way but that's I mean so that irony is just sort of a, is a is a concern and then yeah. there is also the uh, besides the monopolies and the the uh, other there's the problem with the pernicious issue of of corruption and corruption in the both private and the public sector with uh, over time with that um, that uh, it, there becomes a kind of a collusion for them to uh, in, uh, leverage more returns for uh, increasingly maybe smaller partners in these partnerships. 
I mean, I think that it is it is hard to imagine how very, very large corporations could partner with government to take on big challenges and not end up exerting an enormous amount of influence on what government does in the years ahead. It's hard to understand. It's hard to imagine that you could have that position and not use it broadly. So I think that we do, that we do have a legitimate reason to be deeply concerned about what happens to the average person, the small business owner, if the as these things grow and become sort of the norm for 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 they become business as usual. Um to my mind it, that sort of reinforces this trend towards inequality in our country. You've got you've got uh, all the wealth concentrated in smaller and smaller hands, and these hands are working more and more closely with government. And while that will confer some benefits, it also certainly reduces the opportunity to deliberate and discuss and influence outcomes for most people. So do we want to be in a, in a society that is managed by technocrats and experts? That, that would probably be the direction to take. Um, you know, private-public partnerships and so on. If we don't want that to society, okay. What? What if? if we then, don't. then, then we have to we have to start um, uh, looking much more carefully at these at these private-public partnerships before they're the deals are are signed and delivered. And we that's with participatory citizenship and the political will that are surrounding exactly. all this. And I, I, I mean, I'm just trying to find out if people are going to vote. And this this is a much deeper commitment of participation than um, where we see voting dropping off with uh, younger and younger cohorts. So I, I don't know if you're uh, finding an antidote to this, Richard. I'm, I think that you, one can, of you the can't be everywhere every, no, uh, with CUSA. So. But I do think I do think that that, uh, you know, educators and, and other people who, who work with our youth have some role to to um, not further alienate them from the political space. I think that, that some of us need to encourage people to get involved. And whether that's directly involved by voting or at the local level by doing things and getting things done for the good of, of society, I think that we want to we want to remind people that that's, that's important, that's valuable, that it's still possible, and, and so on. So I, I think that it is alarming that lots of young people don't see themselves as... as Contributors. Um, yeah, they don't see Actors. themselves as relevant to to politics. They see themselves as on the margins of it. They've accepted that, and 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 they and I think they regard politics as something done by a small group of professionals who are dedicated to the political, and that's that's um, remarkably anti-democratic. Remarkably, for those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is Richard Matthew, director of UCI's Center for Unconventional Security Affairs here on Ask a Leader at 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming all over the world on the web at KUCI.org. Well, uh, you mentioned the Gates Foundation, so I was trying to find out if you, uh, I was thinking about them too in preparation for this, and I was thinking about the Clinton Foundation. They've got an enormous, both of them, I mean, not uh, the Clintons don't have as much money as the Gates do, but they're they're on the uptick, and I, I, I don't know if there's, uh, similarities between what they're doing. Uh, it it has a feel from my removed vantage point. But are uh, what are there good case scenarios coming from either one of those that you can put up as an example? Because I I I'm a little leery when I hear Bill Clinton talking about what he's 
putting out there as a, as a new venture that the foundation's engaged in, I just feel like it's a little too feel good that there there is a, an enormous advantage that a firm is getting. It's a it's some pharmaceutical company is stepping in and do, well, the Gates have lots of pharmaceutical companies too that are, to uh, turn around some large public health uh, emergencies. But how would you uh, either grade them both, or how would you extract from what they're doing as a an example to uphold that might be a model for any uh, a, a sort of um, ready in the wings uh, public participants to see is a, a model to carry on. I mean, I think that that one of the one of the things that we have to consider is that is that this very very privileged group of people, this one percent or point one percent of the world's population, who control you know, depending on the country, 30, 40% of the world's wealth. Um, uh, that's an tr- enormous amount of capacity. And of course, it is exciting that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and the Walton family and Clinton want to do good for the world. But while they have an enormous amount of resources, they only have 0.1% of the ideas, the understanding, the innovation, the ingenuity that the planet possesses. So there's no particular reason why we should think that a small group of people who have deep pockets also have the understanding Fair. to solve the world's problems. Those things do not go together. You don't automatically understand the world better because you're wealthier. You have more capacity to impact it. So one of the biggest problems is what structure do we need? What framework we do we need to help guide how this money is used. And I think that in, in the case of the Clinton uh, initiative, it, get, it moves in, in one direction after another repeatedly and hasn't really settled into a groove where it's having an impact. Gates Foundation um, has very clear objectives, right or wrong, it's going to invest in them. And people are divided about whether he and his foundation are getting things right or they're, they're not. But I think that the key point I want to suggest yes. is they don't have all the answers. They do have most of the resources but they don't have most of the ingenuity. Yeah, and you're probably kind of chomping on the bit that, you know, as uh, like with Clinton sort of emerging into uh, deep more deeply into the 1% that it's a it's it's a perspective that uh, I think it's easy to lose sight on what's going on, on on the ground. Even though I mean he's 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 got the capacity to interact and deal with that local level from his uh, earlier campaign finesse, but it's but that's not where he's spending most of his time and that will color his uh, approach to the whole in, of these in large intractable health public health problems. I mean, I think that that um, those people who have um, achieved, attained, or inherited much of the time enormous capacity have an understanding of the world and an understanding of how to solve problems in the world, which is highly particular, and highly. it always has a f- it always has as the feature of keeping themselves in their privileged position. It never involves changing their position in the world. So so that's a non-negotiable part. They stay at the top, and then they solve problems. And I think that top-down problem-solving, we're discovering on the sort of challenges we're facing, has yet to have much impact. So so we've had a l- many decades of, 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 of attempts here. But we haven't seen the end of HIV, AIDS, malaria, cancer, um, resilience built in the face of climate change. At the same time, I'm not going to say that we haven't seen some exciting experiments and some things that could be scaled up and some things that that ought to be, you know, uh, given more attention and focus. Of course, there's been some good ideas, but there's been a lot of of less than 
than than let's say um, uh, less than exciting uh, investments. Well, that's a perfect segue to uh, an example of where it's working out. It's uh, from the bottom up. Uh, For a pretty steady guy like you, you're pretty animated when you think about Build Africa, uh, constructing sustainability with particular inroads in Malawi and Swaziland. Uh, You've joined forces with CEO Cindy Evan Voorhees, who's lined up volunteer time from experts like uh, uh, local experts, Steve Key with uh, LPA planning firm, Steve Gabbard of Snyder Langston, uh, Bob Horton, your international uh, aid veteran, uh, Julie Puentes with the uh, Orange County Hospital Association at Southern California, and the and Tanya Reza, founder of Create Progress, a nonprofit organization out there in Cape Town in Karachi, Pakistan. Uh, it's quite a lot of a t- talent you, that's been leveraged. So, how is CUSA involved with Build Africa? I mean, right right now, um, that we we are involved in a sort of interesting experiment in Swaziland. Swaziland is a country that has the world's highest incidence of HIV-AIDS. Um, somewhere in the vicinity of 40% of the people are HIV-AIDS positive. Um, the highest incidence wow. of co-infection with tuberculosis, somewhere around 90% of those people. Um, an unremarkably high poverty rate, about 70% of the population is malnourished and experiences stunted growth. Um, so the country is, is, is also the last country in Africa ruled by an absolute monarch. Um, so, and, and by the way, it's, it's, this, it's one of the places where Coke produces its secret recipe. So it's, it's largely been converted into sugarcane. So it's an interesting country captured <sighs> between the borders of South Africa and Mozambique. Um, and it is, a, it is becoming a country of orphans. About one out of five people in the country is an orphan. This is unprecedented in the country. In the past, if, if, so, if a child lost his or her parents, he, w- he or she went to live with relatives. Now there are not enough relatives to absorb the orphans. So you have a country where there are all sorts of households headed by kids 11, 12 years old. It's, it's, it's quite uh, remarkable. And uh, we're, part, we're, we're involved in, a, in an effort to create a village um, uh, as a home for, for these orphans or some of these orphans and a place, uh, sort of a site of, of, of social entrepreneurship. They've created um, bakeries and, and honey uh, industries and, and, and a dairy and so on, initially to feed, to feed the kids, but also to train them on in, in ways that they'll, you know, as they, become, as they become adults, they'll be able to take into the economy with them. So it's a, it's a really exciting experiment in a country which, if it doesn't transform, um, could actually, is, is, you know, it's facing an existential crisis, so it could actually disappear over the next 30 or 40 years. Um, what we're learning in a country like that, where you have a huge disease burden, a high level of, of social violence, and in, in, you know, climate pressure, um, is, is uh, I think, lessons that will be able to be applied to many other parts of the planet. Richard, I'm just thinking, if Coke has their secret recipe, they're sort of like, there'll be no country in 35 years, but Coke's ex- just extracting resources and producing? <laughs> I mean, that is such a distortion. Um, I think that, that um, <gasps> it's, it's, the economy is largely built around Coke's investment there, and, and, and there isn't a lot else going on. There's a, there's a small textile industry b- which used to have privileged access to the U.S. market. That was closed um, because the U.S. felt, I think rightly, that the country was not making sufficient progress on human rights issues. Um, 
and I, do, and I don't want to suggest that Swaziland had the scale of violations that we see in other parts of the world, but they weren't meeting the, the goals that the U.S. had set for it to have this privileged uh, uh, market access. Um, so so, so there, isn't, there aren't a lot of games in town. It is the site of the last serious populations of white and black rhinos. So there's a small tourist uh, ecotourist industry, but basically Coke is, is, the, Coke is, is, is the big investor there. Um, and I, I don't I don't know the company that well. I think it's one of half a dozen sites where the secret recipe is produced around the world. It would be interesting to find out where the other ones are. Yeah, that's, uh, no kidding. Wow. Well, um, that's so. There's there's you're starting with the sort of the getting the the ground um, truthing the the situation going from the bottom up. You you know what the the public health crises are the uh, the high poverty rate, the demographics of the heads of the households. So you're starting first with the community centers and then building villages. So it's a sort of a uh, the like a social framework that you're building at one unit at a time into a larger organism, so that uh, you can. Why can, can you just take this to the Clinton Foundation and say, I know how much how good you feel. You'll feel even better if you help us out. Or are you not I mean, interested? Okay. Have you ever tried that? Um, the, the, a proposal has been made to them, but it hasn't, it hasn't been funded. But I do, I do have to say I think this is one of the most interesting experiments yes. um, on the planet. And, and the village, by the way, um, is a reclaimed mining town. Um, for so during the the nineteenth uh, and into the twentieth century, it was owned by a British company, and they built a very solid infrastructure. But in nineteen eighty six, the mine closed, and over the next twenty years, the the entire place became overgrown and started to fall apart. And then eight years ago, it was purchased by a, a group of humanitarians, and they've basically um, uncovered this infrastructure, refurbished it, and, and it has turned it to a really, really nice place. Who's the they that, that got that started? You know, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a couple of Canadian philanthropists and a couple Whoa. from Swaziland as well. So they joined forces to buy the village and to start the fairly expensive task of clearing it out and, making th and, and getting things to work again and, and determining what could be salvaged and what couldn't. Um, but they have created hundreds of homes for these orphans. Um, and, 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 and actually a school or something there many schools okay so there's schools at all at all levels and and the, and you know the kids are 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 it's really remarkable the kids are doing I spent uh, much of the summer there with my family and the and the kids there are are doing incredibly well kids who have come from extremely challenging circumstances were your kids involved my kids were involved and they uh, um, so they, they spent time working in the orphanages. They, they, they visited the schools. They took on some, some projects. They had a, they had a uh, life-changing, I think, experience there. No, no doubt. Well, uh, these are excellent projects. Um, well, oh, and that, the Canadian, was that, that was private money, obviously, because yeah. they they're not part of the, the, the Swaziland government. So that, that is a public-private partnership. But there, there was the key ingredient of addressing available local resources addressing a local uh, cultural and political structures what political structures what remain yeah so that there is a success it's it, well let's let's see what happens it's still How early it? days it's 8 years old oh, just 8 okay so so it has been exciting to be part of it and and uh, um, we conducted some some research there over the past year um, and there's there's it's it's very exciting but 
whether it will catalyze the larger scale transformation that the investors hope um, it will ha- remains to be seen. So can this be scaled up or, or is it going to be a, a, a smaller type of victory? That I'm not sure. I think it has the potential, but I think there's still some, some strategizing to be done. So does CUSA have to keep going down there, over there, to, to uh, look, look you know, see what's happening? I have I've recently um, become the director of a new initiative on the campus the Blum Center for Global Engagement. And, and the, this is a, a sort of a exciting opportunity. Richard Blum, who's the husband of Diane Feinstein, oh, and, right. and, and okay. a UC graduate, a UC Berkeley graduate, um, has invested in, in, in all 10 campuses to try and create a framework that would bring you know, the ingenuity, the passion of the UC system to bear on the issue of poverty. And so one of the things I'm doing is I'm creating a bridge between that new initiative uh, designed to, to help students understand and fight poverty in impactful ways to this site in Swaziland. So we'll be sending a team of students out there, I think, in the fall. Um, it'll be one of several sites. And so, so our, our objective is, it, with the Blum Center, which is, is partnering with CUSA, is to deepen our understanding of, of poverty in the 21st century because it's not a it's, a it's not a fixed and immutable problem it's a constantly evolving challenge um, deepen our understanding of it uh, and 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 figure out how we can take the enormous stock of resources we have in the UC system and bring them to bear in meaningful ways on poverty locally in Anaheim and Huntington Beach and Santa Ana and around the world so that's an exciting you know that's an, that's a really exciting initiative and some of the research sites of CUSA will be a Will be utilized as as uh, as platforms for this new initiative. So bef- besides following the the CUSA website, it's the the Blum Center for Global Studies That's for global engla- engagement. Global engagement. Yeah, it's okay. a great. It's a you take a look at the website. It's 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 a it, it's a, it's a fascinating group of people. We have about twenty five faculty and about twenty five students. Then we just we just started this year. Okay, well there you go. There's one of the many topical parts of what we could cover now, and we'll watch that and have you back on. You're ev- you're everywhere all the time, so it's a those beginnings. Maybe we get a chance to get you back in uh, and post us on uh, how that's opening up, as well as the Build Africa. There's also the all important new. It's called flood rise. It was with the persistent creep of sea level rise, the hazards of flooding loom increasingly over coastal zones everywhere, and you're responding to that with Flood Rise, a really ambitious project nearby uh, Tijuana's Los Lorales Canyon and Newport Beach coastal areas. And you've combined design aspects uh, with uh, the UCI engineers like Brett Sanders, who's developed models examining the mixing of ocean water and watershed pollutants with marshes, lagoons, and harbors. And then working with the demographics uh, is the social ecology PhD uh, Kristen Goodrich and among, among many other uh, UCI students uh, in social ecology to see what the the community's constituencies and the policyholders are capable of. So um, that's that's pretty new, and it's in the it recently <laughs> published for anybody who's already gotten their copy of the UC Irvine magazine. Yep. Way to go, Kathy Lahan. Uh, it's the spring 25 edition, so you can read all about that. But Richard is here to tell us uh, what he wants about where Flood Rise is going. With this bottom-up, it's got to yep. be bottom-up. It's got to be multi-jurisdictional, multidisciplinary. Well, I mean, here's the, here's our take on on uh, the sort of animates this project, and I think it is it's one of the most exciting projects that Coos is involved in. One of the I would say one of the most exciting projects at UCI. Um, flooding affects has affected one out of every two people on the planet, 
According to current estimates, we could be experiencing a trillion dollars of flood damage a year by the middle of the century. That's in 35 years. Now, to put that into perspective, a trillion dollars worth of damage a year. If that damage took place over the course of decade, a decade, it would be like we had fought 170 major wars in the course of a decade. We're talking about an awful lot of damage, and it's on the near horizon. And we've already seen it, Hurricane Sandy, and we've seen what happened in New York. We, and we, that's we, not we've over. Seen it. it's, Sandy is it's, still it's, happening. It's getting, uh, it's, not only have we not recovered from those, those floods, but the, the vulnerability to flooding as our infrastructure ages and our cities uh, grow is, is growing. So it's, it's a combination of sea level rise and aging infrastructure and more people living on coastlines. It creates the, 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 the conditions for increasing vulnerability to flooding. Very, very damaging natural hazard, the most damaging natural hazard in the planet. So what we're trying to do, we have these very sophisticated models for, for um, uh, predicting how flooding will occur in any urban setting. Very fine-grained, very detailed models. And what we wanted to do was, was figure out how do you make those models generated on the campus useful to people who actually um, want to build resilience, who have to make decisions in, in, in very different contexts. How do you make them relevant to people living in very poor communities? How do you make them relevant to people living in You're wealthy? That. And, and this is what we're trying to do. So we're taking this, this, this powerful engineering models and we're getting to know what the communities value, how they understand flooding, what decisions they have to make, what resources they have, and we're trying to bring them together with the ultimate objective of improving the resilience of these communities. And if we do it right in Mexico, Tijuana, in California, Newport Beach, if we do it right in these areas, then we'll have a model that could apply to almost the entire world. You've got it's the whole very range. exciting. And when you talk about the fiscal impact, that's a, the, we're not even getting at the fact that the, though there are super scarce public dollars. So yes. anything that's going after sea level rise and flooding is going away from the other infrastructure, social networks and all social welfare systems. So we can't afford to, to let this expense tab run yet higher. One of the great potentials of this of this project is to allow us to target investment much more inf efficiently so we can really build resilience in these communities in a way which has never been possible and that's because of of the sheer volume of big data that we have from remote sensing that allows us to to prepare these models Five or ten years ago, you could not have modeled flood dynamics with such fine-grained detail. So, 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 and you're exactly right. You know, in our, in our country, the American Society of Civil Engineers gives our country's infrastructure a D plus. That's everything. That's it's everything. What we can't see those bridges, roads, water pipes drainage bursting, systems, water bridge. pipes, you name it, it is all eroding. And and it makes perfect sense. The entire world built aggressively after World War II. Either it was newly emerging countries in Africa and Asia or countries in Europe recovering from war or the US benefiting from its incredible wealth. We invested in infrastructure, but that infrastructure now it's, it's 60, 70 years old. It is at the end of its life. And we we have not been making the in investments to maintain it for the past 20, 30, 40 years. And it's not so counting the older infrastructure built before World War One in the Northeast. And that, exactly. So, so we have these drainage systems that can no longer drain effectively. We have roads that can no longer move people efficiently. We have, uh, you know, buildings that are that should be condemned and bridges that are in danger of collapsing. And the the price tag for this is enormous. So hopefully the model will help us uh, make this a little bit more manageable. And the model also addresses 
water quality, and water supply. Which are, you know, increasingly, uh, especially in California, you know, huge, salt huge water, issues. Saltwater intrusion is yeah. the end, folks. We, there's no, that dries up a, a water source, a public drinking water source. And I think that, that, you know, certain forms of coastal flooding and sea level rise have enormous potential to contaminate freshwater systems. That's true in California. It's true throughout the world. So again, if we can model these and find ways to, to you know, manage the water, the, the changing hydrological systems more effectively than we than we are today, um, the potential savings are are almost um, impossible to overstate. How about are there any? Uh, there must be in social ecology with all the urban planners there. Are they addressing the kind of retreat from that coastal zone of more intensive uh, construction, or is it, it's just there's no way to be can deal with that that private good that just only seems to increase in value when people are in such denial about the imminent sea level rise hazard. I mean, here we have again this, this um, you know, the stark contrast because between the very wealthy who, who are experimenting with stabilizing coastlines and, and building armature to, co to, to things like sea level rise, and the very poor who move down into these areas because they're rich in resources or because that's where the jobs are that they can get. Um, so wealthy people like to live on the coast, and poor people are forced to live on the coast. And probably in the grand scheme of, 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 of the planet's future, we're putting way too much pressure on this this bit of territory around the world. So, are any of the urban planners at, at UCI that are working with this whole venture with Floodrise are they talking about uh, land use regulations that are starting to deal with carrying capacity in the this uh, flood prone uh, domain? I mean, that's one of the great things about this project is that we're bringing together engineers, planners, and political scientists and economists. And so the planners have this unique opportunity to use these very sophisticated models to help and think about. Folks. Ab about yes, more resilient urban development, and and that is um, ideally one of the of, of the valuable outcomes that will that will um, be able to generate over the next year or two. Well, for those of you who've joined us, we are so fortunate to have for this whole hour Professor Richard Matthew. He's the director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs. CUSA uh, is the name, and it's such an endearing. Um, name, um, talking about now the uh, flood rise project that is uh, spans the Tijuana Los Lorales Canyon and the Newport Beach coastal areas. And I want to give Richard every opportunity. There's there are many particular elements that are going on at CUSA, but uh, Richard's got a sustainability lecture series that continues, and tomorrow night that's uh, April first. No fooling, uh, Katie Leakey. Uh, the associated with the Venerable Leakey Clan will be there uh, tomorrow night at UCI's Engineering Lecture Hall 100. Uh, what uh, do you think people are going to be? I mean, people are still, ex Kelly's uh, still accepting reservations for this. It's yep. free to yep. go there. But uh, what are you expecting her to give as a takeaway message? I mean, Katie Leakey is a phenomenal person. And, and what she and her husband, Philip, and the Leakey Clan, obviously, they're sort of like the Cousteau Clan in terms of, of their impact on, on 
the, the world's environment. Um, but they are they are experimenting with with new strategies for financial inclusion to help people whose who whose you know traditional livelihoods are being undermined by global environmental change. She's got some wonderful stories to share and and a very positive message about how we can use uh, you know powerful technologies in ways that are culturally appropriate around the world and that really make a difference. Um, and I should mention that that the following week, Jay yes. Famiglietti will be here to talk about what satellites tell us about the California drought. And on that's April 8th. And on April 29th, Bruce Laurie will be here. To, uh, he's the author of the book Slow Death by Robert Duck. And he'll be talking about what it means to our health to be exposed to an endless stream of contaminants in our food and water. So, so I think that we've got a great lineup over the month of April. And uh, they're all open to the public. I invite everybody to, uh, to join us. Well, Jay Femliet has been on here tons of times and has uh, uh, told us all about what keeps him up at night. I, I, well, I don't know if we have time before we talk about the Human uh, Security Award. What, 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 Richard, besides the fact that you do not have enough time on your watch to take care of what you want to address, what keeps you up at night? I mean, I think that it is, it is the fact that we understand, increasingly we understand the conditions the, the complicated web of conditions that manifest in people's lives as tr tragedy, violence, disaster. We understand these things, and yet we continue to be in a response mode, helping people to survive and helping people to recover. To my mind, the biggest challenge is can we back away from this a little bit and put some pressure on these, these alarming trends, these alarming drivers of disaster and, and war. Because having spent most of my career in war zones... Everywhere in the world. Uh, in Every Africa continent. and South Asia, yep, uh, especially. I have to say that, you know, I feel sort of outraged when I see the conditions in which people are forced to try and survive around the world. And I know that, that we're implicated in those, in, in those conditions. We're all involved in creating them and allowing them to reproduce themselves year after year after year. We're implicated in those traditions, too. It's our we tradition are. of our maintaining our role of a high standard of living at the expense of those and impoverished entities there. The I, I mean, to, to my mind, when you see sort of the, what's embedded in a lot of our lifestyle, the child, the child labor, the environmental stress, the, the violence that's embedded in our lifestyle, when it becomes visible, it's sort of, you're sort of compelled to, to rethink what you're doing and to see if you can do a better job of living. And I think all of us want to, you know, I think this is a generation, this next generation, the generation at UCI, want to be able to look back on their lives with, with pride. And, and, and not say, yeah, we heard the stories, but we didn't respond, but rather to say, we, knew, we know we're Im involved in what's happening in the world, and we decided to take some action about this. And you're giving every opportunity for undergrads, grad students, colleagues that are already credentialed. Everybody is on board with trying to uh, apply themselves in so many uh, respectful, unique, uh, productive ways so that it's only growing there at CUSA. And maybe, I don't know, are you a model to other college campuses to well, I will sort say of harness this kind of intellectual wealth? I mean, I think that, that first of all, no, no student at UCI should ever feel that there isn't an opportunity to do something meaningful during their four or five years here. There are great opportunities on this campus. Um, 
we're part of a of a larger sort of movement across campuses to do this. Um, and one of the things that, that's most exciting to me, are we a model for other campuses? Well, right now we're working with Columbia University and uh, the Environmental Law Institute and the UN to create an environmental peace building academy to share everything that we have learned over the past two decades about the challenges of helping countries recover from conflict and disaster in ways that are sustainable. That means fair and environmentally sound. Getting into that vacuum before. So so to, to be working with, with Columbia and the UN on this is, is very exciting. It, it says something about, about the quality of the research our students and faculty have been doing. Well, it mm. is phenomenal. I, I, you put it on a very positive note, and so I think that was a that was helpful. <laughs> but it's it's steep. It's a tall order everywhere, and I'm I'm hoping that you are able to make dig into some of that capital that some of these well-intentioned larger foundations that we talked about earlier in the show that help them be more effective not, to make your programs expand and uh, be more uh, forces to be reckoned with because you're onto it with the bottom-up, multi-jurisdictional, multidisciplinary approach. Well, thank so, you. Well, Richard, it's good to have you on the show today. In the time you spent here at the station, you could have tamed a problem in a republic somewhere in the world. Thanks for joining me in the studio to provide our listeners with some fine options to turn around some pretty unwieldy trends that sure do keep me up at night, too. Well, Thank you, Richard Matthew, for being on the show today. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. I just wanted to announce, folks, because uh, I try to do that from time to time, on the campaign finance front of promising development, it's the California Disclose Act, uh, Assembly Bill 700, authored by Assembly Members Jimmy Gomez, he's in the Northeast LA area, and Mark Levine San Rafael uh, up the north part of the state. The Disclose Act... Uh, if it passes, it should help voters see who really pays for ballot measure ads on the ads themselves. Grassroots activists are organizing a campaign to pass the bill in response to skyrocketing political spending. Over $640 million has been spent on ballot measures alone in the last two election cycles in California, most by funders hiding behind misleading names like stop special interest money now or Californians against higher health care costs or in the case of Irvine, the California Homeowners Association. So Ir Irvine was hit too with some of this dark funding in the last couple of cycles. So we covered that with Frank Barbero and Frank Lending last month on the show. Well, this brings the show to a close. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Le type a surgi sur le boulevard, sur sa grosse moto super chouette. S'est arrêté le long du trottoir et m'a regardé d'un air bête. J'ai le même blue jean que James Dean, j'arrête ta frine. J'parie que c'est un vrai Lévi Strauss, il est carrément pas craignos. Viens faire un tour derrière l'église, histoire que je te dévalise.